Our text this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 3. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let us pray for the blessing of the Lord and His Spirit upon His Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would use this, Your Word, to bless us, to strengthen us, to rebuke us, and to encourage us. That we, Lord, might follow You. That we might love You more. That we might trust You more. We thank You, Lord, that we are able to understand Your Word by the work of Your Spirit. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There are things that make us afraid, aren't there? For some children, it's the mysterious, somehow invisible to everyone else, monster under the bed. But sometimes for adults, too, there are things that we blow up in our minds that make us afraid. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been watching lately, and there's an entire uh, industry. It seems that the home burglar alarm industry wants you to believe that at any given moment, a person will either kick in or batter in your door. And the only thing that can possibly make them go away is the siren followed by a calming voice on the phone. Are you okay? But there are other things that we really should be afraid of because the world is a dangerous place. I remember as I was growing up, one of the uh, hit television shows was a police show called Hill Street Blues. And it began the same way every morning as the police were about to go out, the sergeant would say, now you be careful out there. Because he knew it was a dangerous place for them to go. Going against dangerous people. People. The world outside can be a very dangerous place. But the other thing is, if we are careful, if we are not careful, we will not see that the world inside here in the church can be a dangerous place as well. He's a little bit older, but some of you remember that famous character, Pogo, who said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And oftentimes in the church, when we meet the enemy, we can find out that it is us and it is our need to repent that should scare us. Well, what I would like us to see this morning is Paul's warning to God's covenant people to be careful in a world that is dangerous and to be confident because they know the Lord Jesus Christ, the true captain of their salvation. And so this morning we'll see three things from Paul. The first thing we will see 
are reminders. As Paul reminds this church at Philippi of his work and of their work. And then secondly, we will see warnings. Warnings that Paul lays out of dangers that are ahead. And then finally, after looking at the reminders and looking at the warnings, we will look at the encouragements that Paul lays out for the Philippians and for you and me. Encouragements to go on in the Lord Jesus. So let's begin then by looking here at chapter 3, verse 1, and see the reminders that Paul has. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, his first reminder is to tell the church at Philippi and to tell you to rejoice. And he does it in what might seem to be an odd way. The first word of this verse is finally. Now, if you have a Bible, you will see just as well as I do, and I even commented on it earlier, that this is smack in the middle of the book. So, Paul is saying here, Finally, and he's about to go on for two chapters. And we wonder if he has the typical preacher's disease where he says, in conclusion, four or five or six times. Where you know that the words in conclusion really mean, in the, in the words of one young child, nothing at all. No, that's not what Paul's doing here. But he is using this phrase to catch our attention. You see, this can also mean, well, to go on then, or well then, or let me draw your attention to this next section. You see, when he says finally here, he's not saying this is the two-minute warning. He's saying we're going to move on from where we were, and I want you to pay close attention to what I am about to say. He's just gotten through giving his missionary report, the work of Timothy and Epaphroditus, And he has described for the church at Philippi the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and of their need to follow him. And now he moves on to a series of warnings. But before he does, he reminds them that they must rejoice. And he does this in the context of his relationship with them. It is not throwaway words that Paul says, finally, my brothers. He wants to remind them that he is in relationship with them, that he is the same Paul that they have known and loved for years. And that's important because Paul's about to say some tough things. He wants them to remember his love for them so that when he lays out this doctrinal teaching, they will listen with open ears. They will hear with open hearts. He's actually being pastoral. He wants them to remember his love them. This is, I think, the hope and prayer of every pastor. I was remarking on on it this week as I thought about the questions that I get from you all on Sunday night and in the hallway and during VBS. Someone will walk up to me and say, well, I have a question for you. And I always preface it by saying, I hope it's not a hard one. And You'll ask me a question, and I'm standing there in a VBS shirt and no Bible in hand and no Greek or Hebrew in hand, and I will answer as best as I can from my knowledge of the Scriptures. But you see, the reason why those answers assist you and help you is because we have a relationship one with another. 
You know that I care for you, that I desire you to be built up in the Lord. And so you don't need footnotes and 16 volumes stacked high. This is what Paul is doing here. He's reminding the Philippians of his authority and his love when he says, my brothers. And he says to them, I want you to rejoice. This is a recurring theme in this letter, so much so that if you ever buy a book on Philippians, the good odds are that somewhere in the title will be the word joy. Jesus, our joy. The joy of the Christian. The joyful church. Rejoicing with the Philippians. It occurs over and over again. Look with me, if you would, at chapter 1. It's in verse 18, Paul says. In the fact that Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. And then again in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he encourages us to be glad and rejoice with him because he is rejoicing. And then we see again in verse 28, he is more eager to send them, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him. That is, Epaphroditus again. Paul wants them to rejoice. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he tells us to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And then finally, in chapter 4, verse 10, he tells us that he has rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Joy is an important thing to Paul. As a matter of fact, we might say it's so important that Paul is willing to forego being with the Lord Jesus Christ in glory that the Philippians might know the fullness of joy. That you might know the fullness of joy. That's how important it is to Paul. That's how important it is to God. That we rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. You see, rejoice in the Lord, he says. Rejoice in the one who has bought you and who owns you. And this is completely contrary to the modern notion of joy, even in the church. You see, the church oftentimes doesn't want a Lord. She will have a Savior, but she will not have a Lord. Jesus can rescue me from hell, but I really don't want him telling me what I should do with my finances or how I should treat my wife or what I should do with my children or what kind of job I should pursue. You see, Oftentimes, we don't want Jesus as Lord. But you see, the truth is, if you will have Jesus as Savior, you must have Him as Lord, and that should be a course of rejoicing. Because, you see, to rejoice in the Lord does not mean to be happy. Paul rejoiced when in chains. Some of you rejoice upon seeing sickness or death. The joy that comes is not in the happiness of our feelings, but in knowing that we are safe in the Lord, that He is our God and our King. And you see, Paul says, the greatest thing that is a hindrance to joy, to true joy, is to add something else to Jesus. He's going to explain that in a minute, but I want you to remember that you cannot have true joy without Jesus Christ, and you cannot have true joy by adding to Jesus Christ. It is only by looking to him as Lord that we can have true joy. So Paul tells us to rejoice. He also tells us to remember. Look what he says. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul has been here before, what he's about to say. 
Now, likely he has either spoken these things to them in person, or perhaps he's written another letter, a letter that has not been preserved for us in the Bible. You know, Philippians A, or like the preface where you start using Roman numerals before you get to 1 and 2. Philippians II, or something like that. They have seen these things before from Paul. And you see, this material that Paul is about to go over is important. Because even though it is not recorded, this other letter, these other sermons of Paul, the Holy Spirit believes it important enough to remind us to put in the text of Scripture that this is not the first time that Paul is speaking of these things. He wants them and us to remember. He so desires it that he is glad for the opportunity to say these things again. He is going to write the same things, and it is no trouble to me. Now, the word here for trouble is a very interesting word. It doesn't just have the connotation of being difficult or annoying, although it has some of that. It also is used often in the Proverbs of the lazy man. You know, what the King James calls the sluggard. The one who sits around and does nothing as as the world passes them by. Who does not have a purpose in life. Who's lazy, troublesome. You see, Paul says, I'm not going to be lazy about this. This is my job. It's no burden to me. I love to do this. And so here we see another aspect of Paul the preacher. Not only does he say finally in the middle, but also he says, It is no trouble to me to tell you the same things again. Because you see, that is the job of a pastor. To repeat, and to repeat, and to repeat, and to repeat. You see, there's not much that's innovative in the Bible. The pastor's job is not to come up with new and interesting things that aren't found in the Scriptures. The pastor's job is to repeat what God has said in the Scriptures. And you'll see that the scriptures are repetitive because God knows that we are sheep. That sometimes, how do I put this? Our heads are a little bit thicker than maybe we think they are. That things need to get pounded into us. You parents see this with your children all the time, don't you? You say things like, if I've told you once, I've told you a million times. You know, there are certain things where you begin in instruction or in rebuke and your children can finish your sentence, correct? I think with me, I should start up a college fund. And every time I say, would you please turn off the light? If I put a nickel, I think we'd be pretty well set for education. But this is the way we learn. We need to have things repeated to us over and over again. And Paul is doing this. He says, I'm glad for this opportunity. And by the way, it's a good opportunity. You see, it's not only not a trouble to me, it is safe for you. You see, Paul is setting up a warning sign along a path that says, careful, rock slides, careful, hairpin turns, careful, slow down, There's a sharp grade. Paul is setting up a warning sign for the Philippians and for you and for me. And right now we see that there are no time for backdoor comments, for innuendo, for leaving things half said. 
No, Paul says now is the time to deal directly. This is a dangerous thing and you must be safe. You must be sure about the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian life. Because the word here for safe is also used in Acts for certain, complete. It's the word that's used when we say we know all the facts. That's this word. Paul wants us to know all of the facts of life, the reality of salvation. And this should be a reminder to us as we deal with one another that there is a time to deal directly. Not, out of, not outside of love, not with spite or meanness, but there are times in which we need brothers and sisters to come up alongside us and not beat around the bush, but to say things like, Brother, I really think you need to show more attention to your wife. Sister, I really think you should keep things that you hear to yourself. And we do this not just so that we feel good, but for their good. And that's what Paul does. You see, he's about to say something very sharp, very harsh, so much so that there are a number of commentators that want to rip Philippians 3.2 to 4.2 out of your Bible. They say, this can't possibly go together. Look at how nice and sweet and kind Paul is in Philippians 3.1. He's saying, brothers, and rejoice. And then look at the language in 3.2. This is obviously someone else wrote this and stuck this in the middle with tape. But you see, these two things go together. Directness and warnings go together with love and with reminders. And so what Paul does here now is he gives a set of warnings in verse 2. He says, it's not troublesome to me to say this again, and I will. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He gives a strong warning. And he warns them against counterfeits and against ceremonialists. Now, the language here that Paul uses is very vivid. He repeats the same verb three times in an imperative form. You can imagine the exclamation points at the end of it. He is sharply trying to get their attention. And what you miss a little bit of is the alliteration, the, the rhetorical flow of what Paul is saying. Because you see, when Paul says dogs, evildoers, and mutilators, what he's saying is kunas, kakus, katatone. He's repeating the same letter K over and over again. He's really trying to get us to focus upon this. And so what is he saying? He's saying, first, beware of counterfeits. Beware of the dogs. You know, the ones who pride themselves on who they are, on their lineage, on their blue blood. Now, when Paul is speaking about dogs here, he is not using cute language, kids. This is not the Beverly Hills Chihuahua. This is not Benji. You see, in the ancient Near East mind, to speak of a dog would be to think of wild dogs who roamed throughout the city and the countryside and who ate the dead for food. There was no Fido in the average Jewish household. They were not kept as pets. You see, a dog was a slur, almost like perhaps we might use the word pig. Although now I hear 
Pigs are being kept as pets. But you see, Paul is specifically using language here that was offensive, that was sharp. And it was the typical way, you may recall, the Gentiles were referred to. You remember that when we spoke about Epaphroditus last week. That the Jews, as they walked by and saw Gentiles, would refer to them as dogs. We see that from commentaries from the era. We see that from literature. And there's actually a religious connotation to the use of this. You see, it's not just an insult. It's a religious term. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. We see here a very interesting interchange, and it's interesting by what is not said. This is the instance of the Syrophoenician woman, or she's also called the Canaanite woman in another gospel. And she had a daughter who was possessed. And we look here at verse 26 of chapter 7. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, that is Jesus, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, let us be thankful to the good Lord that the Syrophoenician woman was not the American woman. Or she would immediately throw up her hands in disgust at being called a dog and probably try and file a defamation suit against our Lord. But do you see what's very interesting here, what she does and what she doesn't do? She doesn't pause at all. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You notice that? She doesn't miss a beat. You're right. I'm a dog. But you know the dogs still get to eat too, Lord. They get the crumbs. You see, she understood that it was a religious connotation that dogs referred to those who were outside the people of God. Those who were outside of the obvious covenant of God. Now, when you get that, that makes this word much more harsh than any four-letter word that you could hear. Because, you see, Paul is looking right at those who are saying, well, you know, you need to keep the law of Moses to be a real Christian. You need to be circumcised, and you need to keep your beard a certain way. You can have Jesus, but you've got to have a whole bunch of other things, too. Paul is looking right at them, and he says, you are dogs. They wouldn't miss the connotation. You are outside the covenant people of God. You are pretending to be part of God's people, but you are not, because God's people are identified by the fact that they trust in Jesus alone. Not Jesus plus prayers. Not Jesus plus certain knowledge. Not Jesus plus ceremonies. Not Jesus plus food. Not Jesus plus some drink and not others. No. The people of God are those who trust in Jesus alone. And he says, beware of those who are out there that will tell you, you can't be a Christian because you don't have a tie on in church. You can't be a Christian because your hymnal is blue, not green. You can't be a Christian because you school your children in a certain fashion. You can't be a Christian because you own a certain type of home. And on and on and on. He says, beware of that. Don't let that come into you. Trust in Jesus alone. Don't add anything else. 
Then he goes on, he says, it's not just the dogs. It's the evildoers as well. You see, in the midst of what should have been God people, God's people, evildoers, the question really is not who let the dogs out. The question is who let the evildoers out. They're out amongst God's people doing evil works. Look at this. He says, look out for those who are evildoers, who are workers of evil. Now, again, we need to understand the context here. You see, the Judaizers, those who were, who had claimed to be Christians out of a Jewish background, but yet could not give up the things of Judaism, could not trust in Jesus alone and wanted to lay burdens, especially on Gentile Christians, they prided themselves on their ability to keep the law. And they had a title for themselves. They were called the workers. That was their name. If they had a softball team, it'd be on the back. The workers. And if it was to be spelled out a little bit more, it would be the workers of good. The good workers. And you see, Paul says, you're workers all right. You're evil workers. You're workers of evil. Paul takes their pride and he turns it on its head. Now, he's not saying that we shouldn't keep God's law. He's not saying that we shouldn't do good works. But what he is saying is you cannot trust in that. You cannot say, I have a standing before God because I'm a good worker. It doesn't work that way. You see, only those who are in Christ can do truly good works before God because only they can work in faith. I have to tell you something that's shocking. That a heart surgeon who performs open-heart surgery on a six-year-old so they might live and is successful and saves that child is sinning because they do not do it for the glory of God alone. They do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You see, it begins with the heart not with the hands. Now, if that same surgeon knows the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith does all that they do for the glory of God, follows the chief end of man, then even if they are not perfect, even if they fall short, they are doing good works, works that God has prepared for them beforehand. You see, Paul is saying, that you must begin with the heart and then see the outworking in your life. If you are trying to find a way to get to God today by raising the perfect family, by being as charitable as you can, by doing good, kind deeds for your neighbors, but you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to ask you to stop and look around. To stop and look to the Lord Jesus. Because you must begin with Him. Without Him, all that you do is in vain. I would ask you to come to Him by faith. To be empowered by Him and by His Holy Spirit. And to know true joy in all of the things that you do. To do works not because of guilt. Not because you think it will be a bargaining chip with God. But because you are grateful for all God has done in your life. That 
is why the Christian, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, works to glorify God. And Paul says, these evildoers, they think they are setting up chips to bargain with God. They're evil workers. These are those who are counterfeits. But then there are also, Paul says, ceremonialists. They are those who mutilate the flesh. You see, there was a pride that many had in their physical markings. If you asked them, are you going to live with God forever? They would say, well, of course I am. Well, how do you know it? And they would say, well, we're in polite company, so I can't drop my pants, but I can tell you I was circumcised on the eighth day. I have physical markings that show that I am a part of the people of God, physical markings that can never be taken away. I was circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. You can see it. You can see physically that I am a part of the people of God. And you see, what Paul says is, that's not what gets you to God. It's not things that you do. It's not physicality that brings us to God. We must be born again. We must see and know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he again uses a very sharp term. There is a word in Hebrew and in Greek that is called the circumcision. You may have seen this as you've read through the Old Testament. Paul talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision, meaning Jews and Gentiles. It's a singular noun made for a group. Paul doesn't use that word here. He makes up a new word, a singular noun for a group called the mutilation. Just what it sounds like. He says, they're not circumcised, they're mutilated. Because they are trying to put their hope and trust in their skin, in their physicality not in the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he turns this concept of what they have their pride in completely on its head. Because you see, they might think, those who grew up memorizing the Old Testament scriptures, of another instance of mutilation. You may recall it. We were there about a year ago. 1 Kings 18. Do you remember the prophets of Baal? Do you remember what they did to get their pagan god to answer them? They took knives and lancets and they cut themselves. You see, that was a pagan practice to carve tattoos, to cut off pieces of skin, to put sayings and words and symbols on your body, to try and get control over your so-called God. And you see, Paul says, what you are doing, Judaizers, is just like that. You're a bunch of pagans. You're dog mutilators who work evil. And how do I know this? Because you are trying to add to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just like the Mormon who says, well, I believe in Jesus. Oh, and this. Oh, and that. Oh, and the other thing. Adding on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, Paul is describing these things in such harsh terminology because he wants the Philippians and you to know that the consequences of false teaching are very, very dangerous. You see, it starts out thinking, well, you know, maybe maybe God does like me just a little bit more because I pray facing this direction instead of that direction. 
Maybe God likes me just a little bit more because I use this Bible version instead of that Bible version. Maybe God likes me just a little bit more because of this or that. And you see, what happens is this kind of self-righteous teaching spreads. It spreads, Paul says in another place, 2 Timothy, like gangrene, like disease that everywhere it goes, it causes death. That's what this is like. Paul says, be warned against this. But Paul doesn't leave it at a warning. You see, he wants, in the sharpest possible terms, the people of God to be warned off of these practices, but he doesn't want to beat them up about it because he wants them to be encouraged that they are following the true path. That's why he says in verse 3, for we are the real circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul wants to give them some encouragements. And the first encouragement he gives is a covenantal assurance, an assurance that they are in the covenant. He says to these Philippians, we are the real circumcision. This is where he uses the word, actually, circumcision. We are the circumcision, not them. They're the mutilation. We are the circumcision. He says the covenant people of God are those who believe and trust in Jesus Christ. That is who the real people of God are. And you should be assured, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are a part of the people of God, regardless of whether you have been circumcised or not regardless of the size of your beard or not, regardless of what foods you ate for breakfast or not. You see, Paul says we are beyond those markers. The fullness has come. Jesus is here. (coughs) And we can know that we are a part of the people of God because of what Jesus has done. Because you see, What circumcision really is, is the application of the promise of God to the individual. And in that sense, it's just like baptism. You can look to your baptism as an application of the promise of God. It is not the promise of God. It is not the work of God. It is an application of the promise of God in your life. That you might know the promise is true. And that you might know it is yours. And you see, just like circumcision didn't save, (coughs) now baptism doesn't save. It is a mark of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you are trusting this morning in your baptism, in your church membership, in your parents' church membership, what Paul says is you must turn and trust the Lord Jesus Christ now. That is where the real circumcision is found. And he tells you, if you are a part of his family, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, that you can be assured that you are part of the people of God, no matter what anyone else says, because of God's work in you. He gives them covenant assurance. And then, finally, covenant marks. He says, we are the true circumcision because we worship by the Spirit of God. And we glory in Christ Jesus 
and we put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Paul says the people of God are marked by service to God. This word here for worship, we have seen it before, it means service is its original meaning. Service in a religious context. That is what worship is. It is serving the living and true God. Not serving ourselves or serving others. But it goes beyond worship. It goes to serving the people of God. To being a family. To being a part of a community. That is a mark of the true people of God. It is service to the Lord that marks us out. But it is also trust in the Lord that marks us out. Because you see, those who are Christ's glory in Christ. The word here for glory is actually a word that we have kind of a negative connotation with. Paul's used it before earlier. It's boast. You see, when we think of boasting, we think of someone telling a tall tale, right? I was the best right-handed pitcher in the history of my town's Little League. Yeah, right. But you see here, it's not boasting, it's not false, it's not pomp. It's glorying in the Lord. It's boasting in all that the Lord Jesus Christ is. That is a mark of the people of God. And don't let it be lost on you that the way Paul says this, that by the Spirit of God, they glory in Jesus. The Trinity is there. The people of God rejoice in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have absolutely no confidence in the flesh. How would I say this in VBSEs? No confidence in the flesh. Right? None at all. And notice the parallelism. They have no confidence or trust in the flesh, but instead they boast in Jesus Christ. That is the mark of the people of God. Now, I want you to notice something here as we conclude. And I won't go on for another ten. As we conclude that the people of God are marked by a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, on His glory, on His work, on what He has done, on how He has marked them out, on how He has set them apart, on how He has put His love upon them, on how they can worship Him because of what God does in their lives. They don't say they can just worship. They must worship by the Spirit of God. And at the same time, those who are the wolves in sheep's clothing, those who seek to have all of the trappings, but none of the substance of the people of God, are focused upon themselves, on where they were born, on who their father was, on the things they have done, on the way they think, on the things they can do, And you see, that is the true separation of those who are Christ's and those who are not. It's not where you sit in which pew. It's not how many Bibles are in your home. It's where does your hope and trust lie. And you see, to bring it full circle, if your hope and trust are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will know joy even if everything else around you is a mess. Because if you have Jesus, you can go on, no matter what else is happening. 
But the minute that you try and add something to Jesus, you will live a life of disappointment, fear, and regret. Paul wants you today to know true joy. Paul wants you to know that true joy is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ and His work in your life.